What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. So what are you doing here? A couple of things. Taking a break from my wife, forgetting my son's birthday, and uh, getting paid $2 million to endorse a whiskey when I could be doing a play somewhere. Oh. But the good news is the whiskey works. <laughs> That's Bill Murray and Scarlett Johansson in one of the best-loved films set in Tokyo, even if we see little of the city in Sofia Coppola's film. Tokyo showed up on the big screen late last year in the surprise hit Godzilla Minus One. And then, again this year, in Perfect Days. The latest from Vim Vendors is nominated for a Best International Feature Oscar. This week, we've got our top five Tokyo movies, plus a review of Perfect Days, and more. For podcasting times, make it Suntory time. Ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. Josh, Vim Vendors. He's never won an Oscar, not for Paris, Texas, not for Wings of Desire. In fact, no narrative feature of his has ever even been nominated for an Oscar until his latest, Perfect Days, which is a Best International Feature nominee. He has a bit of a documentary track record, at least as far as nominations go, right? The the Salt of the Earth 2015, PINA 2012, and then going back to Buena Vista Social Club in 2000. But yeah, you look at movies like Paris, Texas, and wings of desire and that just doesn't seem right does it no later in the show we'll have a review of perfect days which is currently playing in limited release and will expand over the next couple of weeks we've also got another golden brick nominee our second in two weeks josh we're trying to get ahead of it this year trying to lock down some early nominees we'll see if we can keep up the pace more about the golden brick our overlooked film of the year award at filmspotting.net slash bricks we're gonna start with our top five Tokyo movies inspired, of course, by Vendor's Perfect Days, which has a plot description as minimal as its title and maybe as minimal as the film itself. A Tokyo janitor drives between jobs listening to rock music. That's accurate. Yeah, that's it pretty much. So set in Tokyo, we thought we would look at some of our favorite movies that are set in Tokyo. What do you got, Josh? I didn't overthink this one. To be honest, um, didn't want to dig too deep into criteria and reasoning and <laughs> and over logic. This basically thinking about those movies that starting introduced me to the city, then helped me define that perception of the city from afar. You know, this is through the movies. This is what I think of when I hear Tokyo. And then I have a couple here that expanded on that perception, showed me other sides than what you usually get in movie Tokyo, at least. that That's about it. That's what I went with. I think you thought it through perfectly, Josh. What's your number five? All right. So starting with one that maybe falls into the expanding my understanding of Tokyo category and a relatively recent film, it's Shoplifters. This is the 2018 film from Hirokazu Koreeda. And since then, Koreeda has made Monster. Uh, just last year, Monster was. And then before that, I believe, was Broker. So this one offered a little bit of a different view for me because it doesn't focus on those things I usually think of in a movie set in Tokyo, the busy streets, throngs of people, those neon signs. Instead, much of Shoplifters takes place in this cramped little garden apartment of a multi-generational family. 
They're a struggling family. They're trying to make ends meet while living on the margins. And as the title suggests, uh, so much so that they rely on shoplifting and other petty crimes to survive. Ultimately, this becomes this complicated consideration of family. I think that's a familiar theme for Corieta. Um, And especially this happens in shoplifters after they take in this girl from the neighborhood who's been neglected by her family, um, pretty much abandoned, and they somewhat unofficially adopt her, which leads to all sorts of revelations, interactions, and complications. I would put shoplifters in the upper tier of Coriata films that I've seen, have not seen them all, but I think this is one of those better ones. And one of the things that you know, I find compelling about it is this distinctive Tokyo setting. It almost seems, again, this is just through a moviegoer's lens, but it it feels like this is taking place largely around the corner or maybe a neighborhood away from where most of the movies, especially the Hollywood, I should say, movies that are set in Tokyo take place. So that one is Shoplifters, my number five. Great film, very emotional film for sure, like so many of Koreda's are. I think that's a good transition into my number five, which is going to match yours in terms of it being maybe a bit of an unconventional Tokyo choice or one that doesn't tap into what immediately may come to mind. If not for people who actually really know Tokyo or have been there many times, I, for one, Josh, have never been there. I don't know about you. It's on the list. Yeah. I only know it from the movies. And you're right. This image that is not totally unfounded, of course, is, I think, as you put it, busy streets, the throngs of people, the neon signs. And I've got a pick at number five that I I think really neatly contradicts that image, or if not contradicts it, because I don't think it's so much in dialogue with it. It's a nice juxtaposition with it. And that's the 2011 documentary by David Gelb called Jiro Dreams of Sushi, which is about a then, I think he's 85 years old, this sushi master. And he owns a Michelin three-star restaurant. At least then it was a Michelin three-star restaurant. I don't know if it's retained all of its stars, but he runs this restaurant and all takes place within or almost the entire film takes place where he does his work. That's what the film is fundamentally about the work, the dedication to it, the commitment, the singularity of mindset required to create sushi at the level he does. And the restaurants located within a Tokyo subway station. So it has been since 2011 when I saw this movie originally, I may be misremembering a few things here and there, Josh, in terms of how much Gelb takes us outside that space. But my recollection is almost as if it could be taking place anywhere in Japan. There's nothing distinctive about it that really identifies it as Tokyo, which immediately would make you think it's not a great choice for a list like this. But again, I really like that juxtaposition where you have this certain image of Tokyo and instead It's all about this kind of interiority. It's about this confined space. And again, this this almost confined focus as well. This fact that you've got this discrepancy of Tokyo being one of the world's most cosmopolitan cities and containing, by all accounts, an incredible food culture. And yet here is one of the greatest restaurants in the world sitting inside this subway station and this ritual almost this ritualistic approach that the main character takes to his craft, 
to making sushi and the actual practice of it, the work, the repetition that it seems to require. And maybe I'm teasing another pick coming up on my list, but there are some very memorable Tokyo movies that are about a certain ephemerality or a feeling of fleetingness. I think the movie we're going to talk about that inspired this list a little bit later very much deals in that. And this sense of of something sort of passing you by. And again, the speed and the pace we're used to seeing of Tokyo that we associate with Tokyo, that's not what we necessarily get here. But we know that's the world surrounding this subway station. But inside, it's as if everything has mostly stayed exactly how it's always been, right? Even though there are also things within that dynamic, within the restaurant, that are changing, that I associate with some of these other films, or at least one major film we're going to talk about in a bit, where you get this family dynamic. And eventually, is Jiro going to be able to? How is he going to totally turn the business and that practice over to his son? That's a key part of the movie as well. Well, a couple connections already I see to Perfect Days. The the meticulousness, the rhythm, the routine, Mm -hmm. and then the subway station location, right? The main character, one of the regular places he visits for his meals is also in a subway station. So maybe not exactly unique to Tokyo. I mean, we have, you know, restaurants in some of the pedways here in Chicago. I don't know that there's a hidden gem, though, that someone would make a documentary about. So maybe this is a unique thing that you can find this level of cuisine in Mm -hmm. the subway in Tokyo. All right. My number four is going to be another down and out look at Tokyo, actually, something like Shoplifters, uh, but this time in the form of anime. It's Tokyo Godfathers. Uh, Comes from director Satoshi Kon, also made films like Perfect Blue, Millennium Actress, and and paprika. Now, this one, interestingly enough, was actually inspired by a 1948 John Wayne Western called Three Godfathers. That was about uh, three outlaws who are on the run, end up taking care of a newborn. I, I've not seen Three Godfathers myself. Cohn translates this to Tokyo, and he focuses on three societal outcasts uh, without homes. So we meet them as they're wandering the streets and scavenging. There's an alcoholic, a drag queen, and then a teen runaway. So together, they stumble across this abandoned baby who they come to care for. And all of this is against the backdrop of Christmas. So, yes, there are three wise men illusions here. And we teased this out on a relatively recent episode of the Think Christian podcast. We were doing a show on three unlikely Advent films. Uh, So Tokyo Godfathers was one that came up there. Now, as far as Tokyo goes... This film presents a cold and snowy, which for me was a relatively new uh, and dirty vision of the city. But it does become something heartwarming by its end, even against this uh, somewhat more, um, as I said, somewhat more down and out backdrop that it's taking place within. I actually like Satoshi Kon's Paprika and Millennium Actress better than Tokyo Godfathers, but this one... Kind of the best fit for this list and definitely worth a watch, though. Maybe you just want to save it if you haven't seen it. Save it till next Christmas season might be your best bet. There's been some recent talk here on Film Spotting, though. It might be actually in some bonus content. I'm not quite remembering, Josh, where Satoshi Kon has come up and he remains a major 
blind spot for me. This film is one I need to see. All of the ones you mentioned are ones I need to see. And he's going to, I know you've seen a few here, but he's going to sit on that marathon list, that future potential marathon topic list for a while, at least until we finally get to him. It'd be a great one. Yeah. And I would love to revisit some of these. Okay. At number four, I've got a film that I'd be shocked if it wasn't somewhere on your list. I apologize, Josh, if I am stealing some of your thunder. I am going with Godzilla, the original from 54. And this is how good the rest of my list is. I've got it at number four. I'm going, though, with the Ishiro Honda film. And you think about the importance of Tokyo here, the centrality of Tokyo to this story. And Tokyo as a as a city in Japan, post-war, unharmed, not by war, certainly, but unharmed by the atomic bombs, of course. And then you think about the centrality of Tokyo to Japan, what it represents to the Japanese people, what it means for that city to be destroyed as we see it in Godzilla by what is effectively a nuclear weapon (laughs) itself. Godzilla is a nuclear weapon. It is the capital of the nation. It's the financial center. It's the cultural center. It it's where all of the business and industry happen. And I was looking back on my notes from our conversation where we did a little Godzilla versus Kong monster (laughs) feature. That was fun. (laughs) One, one versus that actually made a lot of sense. And (laughs) I just remember how often Honda lingers on shots of Tokyo in Godzilla's wake. Yeah. And, and that imagery that, that really stays with us and is sort of haunting from that movie. I don't know a lot about subsequent Godzilla films, but I did read that in a lot of other films, you know, of course he keeps going back to Tokyo, Godzilla, I'm calling him he, Godzilla goes back to Tokyo again and again, because it's where all the nuclear power plants are. You know, it's kind of how it gets its energy and feeds off of that. But in 54, you, you know that the subtext and sometimes the text is this larger collective anxiety where it's literal. I think about a scene like the one on the train where there's reports about Godzilla and people are speculating about whether or not Godzilla's making its way there. And a woman says, this is awful. Atomic tuna, radioactive fallout. And now there's Godzilla to top it off. What if he shows up in Tokyo Bay and a man says, he'll probably go straight for you first. She says, you're horrible. I barely escaped the atomic bomb in Nagasaki. And now this, Hmm. and the lines that immediately follow it are also super crucial because that character says, I'll have to find a place to evacuate to. And the other says, find me one too. And a character says, evacuate again. I've had enough. Mm. So this this lingering pain from the dropping of the atomic bomb is still very much there. And you have characters who are actually saying, I'll take whatever's coming my way. I'll, I'll risk Godzilla. I'm not going through that again. So you've got, well, you've got this city first. It's really like the embodiment of Japan. And then you've got the creature too embodying Japan. Think about the professor talking about Godzilla as something not to be destroyed, but to be to be studied and how the professor doesn't see it as a monster, but as this embodiment, I think the professor describes Godzilla at one point as saying, like, we collectively are Godzilla. It's as if everyone in Japan, like Godzilla, is this creature of an atomic age. And I recall from our conversation 
pointing out that as much as I do love King Kong and I do think it's a technical marvel and on a pure filmmaking level might be the better film, when I watch Godzilla and when I watch them compared to each other, I really think of Godzilla as a more tragic kind of monster. This man-made horror forged, you know, by the hydrogen bomb comes to be this representation of our destructive impulses and then putting it back on us. And, you know, when Kong dies, I think I said during our conversation, I, I was in awe and I'm certainly conflicted, but man, when Godzilla dies, I was, <laughs> I was emotional. <laughs> you know, I really was on this viewing of it, at least that viewing a few years ago, I rewatched today, the scene where Godzilla attacks Japan and it's, it's still highly compelling stuff, no matter how low budget it might be. It's incredibly effective action filmmaking. Well, you know me well, Adam. And so, yes, Godzilla 1954, it's on my list. Not my number three pick, though. So I'll, I'll get to it in a bit and share some more thoughts on Godzilla. For now, I want to talk about Like Someone in Love. So this is more of a familiar movie, Tokyo, I feel like. Those neon signs especially are prominent in this one. And maybe... This is because it comes from a non-Japanese director who's bringing mm -hmm. something of an outsider's eye. Here we have Abbas Kirostami. And of course, because it's Kirostami, it's also Tokyo mostly through a car's window, at least in my memory. Um, that is one of the Iranian filmmakers' favorite visual motifs. Here we follow a high-end sex worker named Akiko, played by Rin Takanashi, and she begins her night at the start of the movie in a restaurant. She's debating whether she should accept this call she's gotten from a client or meet up with her visiting grandmother. And she gets some pressure from her manager, um, essentially chooses she's got to meet this client. So she gets into a cab for the drive to his home, and we have this extended section that serves as this nocturnal tour of Tokyo. So we're getting this through the eyes of Kirostami, as I said. Also, the cinematographer here, Katsumi Yanagajima. The color and light of Tokyo at night gorgeously blurred and this especially happens it's almost like they use the windshields of the car as another lens an additional camera lens to filter that lighting through i distinctly remember the one thing i remember from this film more than anything else is that lovely long take of akiko in the cab she's listening to a series of voicemail messages from her grandmother and they get increasingly sad <laughs> you know just kind of this pleading from the grandmother and meanwhile the Tokyo cityscape is passing outside her window. And that, to me, is is just as crucial to the scene as the grandmother's voice, as Akiko's face. It all works in concert together gorgeously. So that's, that's like someone in love, a look at Tokyo from an outsider's perspective a bit, but still, still just this um, gorgeous view of the city. 2014 was that the year yeah, right around like then I, I think 2013 2014 is is when it came out and it probably one of those that had you know like an earlier release date maybe mm -hmm. in japan yeah i here. just know i just know that sequence 
you're talking about with the car and listening to the messages is one that I felt if there was a better cinematic sequence of that year mm. or or most years, I, I can't come up with it because it really is that striking. And you're right. It's playing off this bustling metropolis and you hear this expression a lot in different contexts, but this notion of how you can be or feel utter loneliness, even when you're not alone. And that's what, that's what that seems to capture where she's, she's surrounded on all sides by all of these people and all of this activity. And yet it, it feels just like total despair. It, it really yeah. is a heartbreak. It doesn't scene. punctuate that bubble that she's floating through mm-hmm. somehow in the car. Yeah. My number three Tokyo movie is the ninth film by, I don't know, pretty good filmmaker you might have heard of Akira Kurosawa. It's Stray Dog from 1949, a film that I I think most people, I glanced at a few lists just to make sure I wasn't crazy. I think most people, if you look at the titles and I haven't seen, actually, I don't think I've seen any of the movies that precede Stray Dog from Kurosawa's filmography, but I think most agree it's his first real masterpiece. It's his first film with Toshiro Mifune, who plays a young detective here. It's if you don't know Stray Dog, it's a really bad day for a cop. That's the movie where he gets his gun stolen and then that gun is used in a murder and the whole film is that cop trying to reclaim his gun and catch this criminal before he kills or hurts again, before he breaks the law. Again, real quick though, back to Kurosawa. Here's the run that Stray Dog starts. And there are a couple of other titles mixed in here, but Stray Dog is 49, Rashomon 50, Ikiru, 52, Seven Samurai, 54, Throne of Blood, 57, Hidden Fortress, 58, Yojimbo, 61, <laughs> High and Low, 63. That, that seems unfair. It's totally unfair, right? And I, I think it's it's only fitting that the, the week here coming off where we learn that Spike Lee and Denzel Washington are going to remake High and Low. Yeah, that's right. We might as well pay tribute to Kurosawa. I, of course, am now excited about that film because of that collaboration. I believe they're fifth together. And I'll acknowledge here as well, we could probably do an entire top five that's just Kurosawa movies. Most of them were set in Tokyo. I wanted to only pick one. And speaking of high and low, I know I know at least part of it is set in Tokyo. It's just been a long time since I've seen it, Josh. I know it was shot in Yokohama. And I want to say it's supposed to take place there with a few scenes in Tokyo. So anyway, that's why I left that off. But there are certainly others that we could have gone with. I'm sticking with Stray Dog, though. And we'll really get into how it uses the city here in a moment. But just on this film and why I love it, I remember watching it a long time ago here on Film Spotting. I think for like a listener's choice kind of bonus content after hours, maybe. And I love the David Fincher film Seven. And I see Stray Dog and I go, oh, okay. I mean, I've never I've never seen Fincher say anything about this, though he possibly has. But you go, okay, there's the model. It's the model for Seven. It's the model for so many other quote unquote, like buddy cop movies. Maybe not the overly comedic ones, Josh, but you know, that dynamic, it all goes back to Stray Dog, where you've got two cops on the hunt for a dangerous killer, and one's a rookie and one's a veteran. And not only is Mufune the rookie, but the veteran here is played by the other Kurosawa regular legend, Takashi Shimura. And there's one key difference between Stray Dog and Seven, among others, which is that it's the rookie who really seems to be able to kind of get inside the criminal's mind. 
and understand how his mind might be working. Whereas in seven, it's it's the Freeman character, Somerset, who has the experience that kind of matches the wiliness of of Kevin Spacey's John Doe. But the criminals are really different here. And the criminal and stray dog is a kid who's new to crime, just like the cop is new to fighting crime. And he may not belong in this world of crime any more than the rookie cop Murakami does in the world of being a cop. So they're, they're very similar. And without giving anything away, by the end, they basically become complete representations of each other. They're, they're doppelgangers. And that's very deliberate on Kurosawa's part. And this movie, it really works completely on the level of police procedural. But instead of just being a movie that's about justice, about a cop catching a bad guy, it really does become this larger search for meaning in post-war Tokyo and and how that ties back to this character in The Rookie Cop, this character's identity, and again, how he sees himself in Yusa the criminal, how he recognizes that maybe if the circumstances were just a little bit different, he could be him and the criminal could be in his shoes. And it's this kind of neo-realist noir where it it is reflecting the conditions of Japan at the time, kind of pre pre-economic miracle in Japan, but it doesn't just follow that overt realism and that sense of it being a procedural that that's all there, but it's also Kurosawa using technique and using his craft to, to really bring it to life vividly. And one, one sequence that's a standout in this film, Josh is there's one that's over nine minutes long where we follow Murakami into Tokyo's illicit neighborhoods where he has to go undercover looking for his gun. And it's the heat is just sweltering throughout the movie. And you really get the sense of this sort of chaos of the environment the effect it's having on our main character, the obsessiveness that he has to have in order to continue this journey. And and in kind of this dichotomy almost of thinking about how important retrieving the gun is to him, the sense of purpose that he is assigned to it against this, this backdrop. In a way, it should it should minimize it, and yet somehow it kind of heightens it in terms of our understanding of the psychology of this character. So Stray Dog is one of those Kurosawa films. I don't know, maybe in comparison to some of those other films I mentioned can be overlooked by some cinephiles, but absolutely should not be. It's great. Stray Dog, an embarrassing Kurosawa blind spot, but it sounds like if I embark on a personal marathon trying to catch up with all my blind spots from him, this might be, might be the place to start. All right, my number two, Weathering With You. This is another anime pick, comes from Makoto Shinkai, who made Your Name and last year's Suzume, which I know we both loved. Adam was, you know, on my top 10 list for much of the year until we got that deluge of great pictures mm-hmm. near the end. Weathering with you, this comes from 2020, and it takes place in a Tokyo that's experiencing historic and violent storms. The story itself follows a teen runaway who's struggling to find shelter amidst all this. He meets a sunshine girl uh, who's a young woman with this mystical ability to dispel a storm in a concentrated space for a short period of time. So in so many of the Japanese films I've seen, it strikes me that the natural elements, the wind, waves, rain, things like that, they're key players, which you know makes sense for an island nation. And Tokyo itself, a 
apparently gets a fair amount of rain. So fitting, I guess, that precipitation is this crucial motif in weathering with you. And I have to say the animation of rain here is unlike anything I've seen before. It has this tactile quality and a photorealistic quality that animation can have, but somehow Shinkai and his team make it magically realist at the same time. It's sort of dancing visually between two worlds. Um, and and there's, uh, there's moments you'd swear it was live action photography and then moments where it it has that magical realist touch that only animation can bring. It's it's really something. So Weathering With You presents Tokyo as this uh, city in relationship with the elements. It's kind of one of the defining features, which is why I thought it was a good fit for this list. Yeah, I remember you praising this movie when it came out, giving it a recommendation here on the show, and I failed to catch up with it that year. And have still failed to catch up with it, though, as you said, Suzume won that didn't ultimately make my top 10, but did make my top 20 of last yeah, year. It's and that good, name, right? Yeah, it really is that good. And your name is that good as well, an honorable mention for me on this list. Okay, so number two, Josh, and number one, I'm combining them. It's it's a double hit here. Okay. And that's because <laughs> you really cannot separate the two films. I am giving you... Vim Vendors, Tokyo Ga, and Yasujiro Ozu's Tokyo Story. The plots, briefly here. Tokyo Story, 50s film, one probably in our top 10 seeding, almost has to be a top 10 seed for 50s madness coming up here on Film Spotting in the next few weeks. That movie is about a retired couple who live in Western Japan, and they go to Tokyo to visit their son and also one of their daughters and their widowed daughter-in-law. Tokyo Ga is this vendor's documentary that has vendors himself, and he's doing the narration here, exploring Tokyo, looking to see if there are still any remnants, if he can find Ozu, the images of Ozu, and everything that his cinema encapsulated, if it still exists. This is 1983 when he's doing it, 20 years, basically the 20-year anniversary of Ozu's passing. And Vendors just reveres Ozu as his cinematic hero and, of course, a cinematic icon, which he is. So this is filmed in 83, just prior to the completion of Vendors Paris, Texas, and then released in 85. And actually part of it, that's interesting is that when he's adding the narration, he's he's looking back on images that he had captured, you know, like two years before. So there's there's this built in sense of nostalgia in what the entire project is and him going to Tokyo in the first place. And then even just a couple of years removed, he's he's looking at these modern images or the recent images that he caught on camera and is trying to make sense of them. And he just really brilliantly, part of the reason why, besides this being a movie predicated on Tokyo story, part of the reason why I'm linking him here, Josh, as well, is that he really nicely, without showing any other that I recall, any other footage from Ozu's films, he takes the beginning for his beginning, talks over the top of it, and he takes the ending of Tokyo Story 
for his ending and puts everything in perspective. And it's just, it's really lovely. And then he also, throughout the film, he does talk to one of Ozu's longtime regular actors. He talks to his longtime collaborator and cameraman to learn about Ozu in the process of working with him. But he is mostly in search of a Tokyo that isn't really from, you know, it's not from his memory, but it's it's from his memory of watching Ozu's films. And what sure. what Tokyo, yeah, what Tokyo ultimately comes to mean in something like Tokyo Story is not about the imagery of the city itself or really the landscapes or what it seems to represent. It's it's this environment in which the culture is shifting. That's what Ozu is documenting, where everything seems to be in flux. Family, traditions, our rituals. As Venders puts it in the film, it's as if he's reflecting a sort of deterioration of the national identity. He talks about Ozu's work depicting this transformation. If you watch the 40 years of Ozu's work, what you're really seeing is this evolution of Japan, a transformation mm. of Japan itself. That's part of what's so incredible about his output. I love the entire experiment as an ode to this cinematic hero, as film criticism, where he is exploring what Ozu's work means and articulating that, but also getting into his formal approach and what made him distinct as a filmmaker. He talks about how he positioned the camera, how he always kept it low to the ground at the height of the people sitting on the floor talking as so many of his films include scenes of the stillness of it. Like I learned from watching this film, Josh, the way once that camera was set, people on the set were afraid of doing anything that might bump the camera because he was so particular about where he had the frame set that once it was locked in, it had to stay locked in <laughs> and there really could be no, no movement. But also he, he talks about how Ozu was committed to using a 50 millimeter lens. And even when cinematographers tried to get him to change to a different setting, he would never go with a different lens. And the 50 millimeter lens is one that, you know, most people will say is a lens that reflects life as we most normally see it. The lens is not doing anything to augment mm -hmm. the visual in a way, in either a sort of zoom way or a wide lens way. It's natural. It's what our eyes see. And of course, that's what that's what Ozu's work is trying ultimately to do. Or so that's the take, the conventional wisdom on Ozu's work. But then, Josh, it's also this distinctly vendor's film. It's completely its own work of art through Ozu's work and through images of modern Tokyo. He kind of uncovers a figurative but also literal plasticity, or maybe not literal because the objects I'm thinking of in, in this one scene, Josh, are not made of plastic but made of wax. He spends an entire day filming people whose entire job is to create the inedible display food at restaurants, the Japanese food at <laughs> restaurants. And he's got this great observation where he, he notes that Making a wax sandwich is actually just like making a real sandwich. But of course it's not. But, you know, it's it's bread. It's condiments. You're using a spatula to flip one on top of the other. And yet, of course, nothing about it is actually a real sandwich. And he spends several minutes focusing on rockabilly dancers that are out in the streets of Tokyo and they're they've they've got the slick back hair and the jackets and the rolled up jeans and and everything. And they're playing the music and they're dancing. And of course, you watch it and think 
someone can correct me, Josh, but did that even really exist in American culture? Or was that something that was an invention of the movies of America in that time period? And he shows people playing golf, how obsessed people in Tokyo are with playing golf, but they don't actually ever play golf. They don't go to golf courses and play. They just go to sort of top golf like scenarios where they're working on their swings and they've got these incredibly beautiful, elegant swings, but they're not they're not aiming at anything really. There's no there's no objective. They're not actually playing the sport. So, you know, everything is sort of a simulacrum or a recreation. And he laments that and what is lost by that. But then there's also a self-awareness, I think on vendor's part that, you know, he knows he's not going to find the real images of Ozu that he is going to find, if anything, just remnants in this culture that's, that's ever changing, ever shifting. But it's such a beautiful compliment to what is already a masterpiece in Tokyo Story. And if none of what I said so moves you to watch Tokyo Ga, if you've never seen it, both of these films, by the way, are available on the Criterion channel. You also get in Tokyo Ga a much younger Werner Herzog at one point appearing. I think they're at Tokyo Tower looking down on the city and you get Herzog just being Herzog railing on the inadequacy of imagery in the modern world and talking about how nobody is brave enough to seek out images anymore except him. <laughs> of course. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So Tokyo Ga have not seen, but Tokyo Story, that is the one, that is the film that I need to watch for the first time before Madness begins, which you mentioned, Adam. It's at the top of the list of yeah. those blind spots from the 1950s that are going to be in the tournament that before I, before I can cast my vote, I've got to see that one. I, I was going to say this because I thought you might say that Tokyo Story is a blind spot. I thought I heard you say that before. And I'm going to say this, and I'm saying it with... No judgment whatsoever, because part of this show over its almost 19 years of existence has been about acknowledging that we haven't seen everything and trying to fill in those major blind spots. But I'm just going to say, Josh, that Tokyo Story truly is your biggest blind spot. I don't know what other films are out there that you haven't seen. It doesn't matter. None are bigger than Tokyo Story. It is on the list when we did that episode. Oh, my gosh. I bet it's over five years ago now of our personal oh, yeah. blind spots. It is on that list that I've been chipping away at. I don't know how high, but yeah, yeah, it's been haunting me for quite a while now. So does this mean uh, you knocked out your yeah. two and one? Do I That's do right. I go with my number one? Yeah, we're ready for it. Well, the attentive listener knows it's already 1954's Godzilla. And the reason I have it this high is I would bet you this was very likely my first movie impression of Japan and Tokyo. This original Godzilla from 54, considering I saw it all the time on TV as a kid. Now, admittedly, this was the American Raymond Burr version that was playing continuously. Now, it wasn't till later in life when I saw the Japanese version, Gohira, that it registered as this, as you discussed it, Adam, this one-to-one -one allegory for the devastation of Japanese cities during World War II. And yes, Hiroshima, Nagasaki, primarily, that is at the forefront, the dropping of the atomic bombs on those cities, but also, you know, the firebombing of Tokyo in 45, estimated to have killed 80,000 mm -hmm. to 100,000 people. So also a scarred city. And that is what this movie is reflecting on. It's echoing it. You talked about it. Honda's imagery 
seen this with older eyes at whatever point I actually tracked down the Japanese version and realizing how the camera, why it's tracking, why it's spending so much time on those wounded and weary citizens, the rubble and the ruins all around them. Yes, for a monster movie, it's to express Godzilla's strength and power, but it's doing so much more than that. Now, I imagine, you know, so much of this movie was made in miniatures that I don't know how much was actually filmed in Tokyo. There are, I was looking at some photographs today, but a, a iconic department store from the time, apparently. I'm not sure if they they got footage there or recreated that in miniature. So it's, it's somewhat strange to say this is like, it's not a Tokyo movie like something like, like someone in love, right? That's spending its whole time in the city or perfect days. We're going to get to spends its whole time in the city. But yet it is deeply evocative of the city's tragic history um, and and formative for me as a moviegoer, really coming to understand that. So that's why I have 1954's Godzilla at number one. Obviously, no argument from me. Incredible film. And those are our top five Tokyo movies. Josh, any honorable mentions, other films you want to slip in? We've already mentioned Godzilla minus one at the top of the show. I think in this context, it's interesting because so much of that, there's a huge section of this film that takes place in a devastated neighborhood um, of Tokyo that the main character is, who's a former fighter pilot. He tries to restart his life here in Tokyo in the wake of World War II. And again, just a different different angle on the city and its history than I'd seen even in something like the original Godzilla. Uh, You know, I think that's, that's a crucial part to why so many people have had an emotional reaction to Godzilla minus one. It has that element to it. And I don't know. I think we both wrestled a little bit with lost in translation as being on our list. It might Mm -hmm. be maybe worth touching on that. It's maybe, you know, my number six or seven, but we alluded to this at the front. It's a movie that's almost about avoiding the city in a way. And I know some people have seen that as a criticism of the Sofia Coppola film, that it, that it's, you know, a movie that's maybe not even interested in its setting. I've always found that to be part of the point. It's a movie about two people who are lost, dislocated and disconnected, disconnected from from those around them. Yeah. So it kind of, I get the criticism. I get the critique. Um, but it still works for me, but it's also maybe why it didn't make its way onto my top five. I'm with you. Lost in translation one. I strongly considered, I mentioned your name. You said Godzilla minus one, a few other titles that I considered, but if I'm remembering them correctly, and if my research proves to be correct, Josh didn't maybe totally qualify Josh because they're just movies that feature scenes in Tokyo or multiple scenes set in Tokyo, but hard to maybe call them Tokyo movies. Still great films. How about Kill Bill Volume 1, The Wind Rises, Yee Yee, and I know I like this film a lot more than you, but Del Toro's Pacific Rim. (laughs) I was wondering if that was going to make your list. Also, Drive My Car, another film with scenes that take place in Tokyo. We would love to hear your picks or any other comments about the show. You can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. If you'd like to look at our picks or any other top fives, just go to filmspotting.net slash lists. If you're looking for a way to help the show and and who isn't, you could take a minute and give us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Do it right now while you're listening. Every one of these helps us to reach new listeners. Even better than that, 
How about joining the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com? We want to welcome new family member Jordan, comes from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Jordan found us via Google and started listening with our year-end top 10 shows to catch up on recent titles he might have missed. Before we hear more about Jordan, can I just briefly say thanks to Cousin Ilya on Apple Podcast, Josh, who of course. Gave, us a, gave us a five-star rating, said been listening since 2008, clearly is hearing through some kind of special headphones, says that Adam and Josh are smart, funny, and entertaining. There's stuff here for everybody. Every show gives time to new releases, indies, classic films, and mentions how you'll hear some really in-depth analysis, but it's still offered in a way that's accessible, even to the casual cinephile. So thank you for that. How about that? Yeah. We also do want to thank Jordan, who, since he's a new listener, doesn't have a favorite segment yet. It's probably now this segment where we talk about Jordan, but <laughs> yes. did note, Josh, that he read your movies are prayers and says he will think about that book for a long time. Oh, wow. Well, thank you, Jordan. You want to hear that? A book that is going to stay in the consciousness for a while, one he's going to think about his current four favorites on Letterboxd, The Gold Rush, Some Like It Hot, Silence, and Children of Men. The movie he credits with Becoming a Cinephile, Appropriate here, as we mentioned Kurosawa in the top five, Kurosawa's Ron and a favorite book about movies or movie making. Jordan says, yeah, it's chalk, but Ebert's the great movies. Oh, totally understandable. And I love that four, by the way, the the variety there. Anytime somebody reaches back to the silent era to include a title in their top four current favorites, that's pretty cool. Welcome to the family, Jordan. In addition to keeping us doing what we're doing, your support does come with perks. You get to listen early and ad-free. You get the weekly newsletter. You get our monthly bonus shows coming next week. We get help from the Film Spotting Advisory Board on the Film Spotting Madness bracket. Finishing that 64 films, getting 96 films down to 64. That should be an enjoyable listen. And the month after that, We've got some trivia spotting. We're bringing the game show back and our family members, some of them will be able to participate. Others will be able to listen to the shenanigans. You also get complete archive access depending on your tier. Filmspottingfamily.com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. この世界は本当はたくさんの世界がある。繋がっているように見えても繋がっていない世界がある。Just a perfect day. Using Lou Reed's Perfect Day in the trailer for your movie called Perfect Days might seem a little too on the nose if it weren't for the fact that Reed's song and the music of that era are very much a part of the film itself. Vin Bender's Best International Feature Oscar nominee is set in Tokyo. It stars Koji Yakusho as Hirayama, a janitor who leads a simple life of work, listening to music, reading books, and taking pictures. We learn a little bit more about Hirayama as the film goes on, but 
maybe we should start with Tokyo, Josh, since it's the film that inspired our top five. Do you think the film uses Tokyo in a more distinctive way than any of the films that made our list? I mean, since we spend 50% of the time in these bathrooms, I would say yes. This is not (laughs) something I'd seen before, and they're absolutely fascinating. Each one is different in terms of architecture, the technology. I mean, I I don't know what's going on with all those buttons you could press. Um, So, so yeah, that that is definitely a new look at Tokyo. But you also, I guess I would say, you know, in the context of – how I thought about my list, this familiar movie, Tokyo, and then this look at another Tokyo. Um, Those are the two poles. It's maybe somewhere in the middle because we definitely see Hirayama driving around and you get a sense of all these highways and the traffic and, and the roadways. uh, And that's familiar. But you also, I think on a, on a call earlier, you know, these are some, there are some picturesque moments of him riding his bike and stopping on a bridge to just look at the river and idiotically, I, I said, like, I didn't realize Tokyo had a major river <laughs> running running through it. And, and because that's just because I don't think I've seen that in the movies set there that I've seen, um, at least to this degree where it was pronounced and, and kind of this beautiful setting. So, so, yeah, the city is very integral. It is part of the rhythm. Everything is about the rhythm of this man's life in this film. And the city's contours define that rhythm in so many ways. Um, It's it's offering him how he can live his life, but there, because it's a large city, there are many pathways, and then he chooses which paths to follow in the city, and we follow him along. So it is, yeah, I mean, if we're doing this list again in five years, maybe Mm -hmm. Perfect Days would have to be number one, actually. Yeah, well, I certainly spent a lot of time talking about vendors with Tokyo Ga in the top five and thinking about this movie through the prism, not only of Tokyo God, but also Paris, Texas and that rewatch we had that was so incredible a few years ago where it had Mm -hmm. been so long. I felt like I was watching it for the first time. You know, he doesn't need a vivid or vibrant nightlife or cityscape vendors that is to draw out color or to find neon lighting or fluorescent lighting. We get that right. Very vividly in Paris, Texas. But you're right. I mean, this isn't that that usual, that conventional image of Tokyo, certainly not that neon look, but we still get these wonderful, subtle splashes of color. And it's it's from the the bathrooms themselves, right? Mm. The the one in particular in that park where when the when the door locks, the the shades close. Yeah. Otherwise you can see into them. Right, right. And they close and we get the the color we get we get purple and we get a an interesting shade of red and we get yellow but then also there's blue and green and and it it becomes what what i realized looking at the different colors is it it really is this entire well it's literally a spectrum it's kind of the whole spectrum of color from primary colors through those those other shades that aren't drawing a lot of attention to themselves. I wouldn't say they're incredibly ostentatious, but they stand out within the film itself when you consider that he does spend most of his time inside either his home or he's in a park looking at trees or he's in these bathrooms working. But we also get some color in his domestic space, right? The purple from the lighting from that other room where his plants are. Yeah. That that glow. The UV. Yeah. Right, the UV, it... it 
it encompasses or really kind of takes over the entire space that he's in. So that was something that that I thought was quite beautiful, but also made me think of Vendors and his work. And I'm with you in terms of this being a film. I think I think a lot of people can probably get on the wavelength of if you first of all respond to the character. And also, if you do, as you put it, find yourself attuned to the rhythms that define his life. And actually, what what stood out to me about this film is thinking about it in terms of it being an unsentimental portrait of a man with a rigid routine, but no agenda. You know, there there doesn't seem to be anything that's that's guiding him, certainly any negativity, maybe that's that's really guiding him. And yet he is a man who finds himself caught up within these these rhythms. And what do I mean by rhythms? Again, I'm using your word, but it's so appropriate because think about how sound is used in this film. He wakes up every day, and this ties back to him as a worker. He wakes up every day to the sound of other people working. Yeah. It's it's the streets being swept. It's his the alarm sound clock. Of that is his alarm clock, right? And you think about the the things he sees out his window and vendors calls attention to him seeing a man, you know, who is pulling people in a carriage. He, he is very often focused on other people who are also doing work and doing a lot of the manual type labor that, that he is doing. But when I talk about having no real agenda, he certainly has no malice that seems to be driving his life and whether maybe I find it totally believable or not, we can, get into that too, maybe, I did respond to this character who exudes such humanity. I mean, think about him him fanning. Oh, <laughs> such a fans, great touch. He fans the guy in, he, he goes every night or very regularly to a bathhouse. Mm-hmm. And after showering and getting clean, he gets in the hot tub and there's a man who's fallen asleep in there and it's so hot and he he fans him. And why does he fan him? The guy doesn't even know it's happening. He fans him because he can. Yeah. He can. And, and, he, and, the guy, and he needs it. The guy needs he it. He needs it. That's yeah. exactly right. So there's that sense of humanity, that overwhelming, overriding sense of humanity. And then the dignity that he brings to the work that he does. And not only that, the dignity he has in the face of the constant indignity that he faces. Mm. Right? I, the woman who immediately after he walks her missing son. A son has gone missing in the park for a few minutes. He finds him in the bathroom. He's looking for the mother. We hear the mother now calling his name. They find each other. And when he hands her off, as they go, he notices that the woman gets out some sanitizer. Yeah. Because the toilet guy, even though he was wearing gloves when he does his work, the toilet guy was holding onto his son's hand. And she gives him a it, dirty look. like her. And gives a dirty look too, but he, he sees that and he kind of just smiles. Yes, and, and his he smile. Gets it, he gets it, and rather than let it be something that drives him or defines him, he, he accepts it. He accepts it. And so I do maybe want to get into this a little bit more because there is a little part of that, Josh, by the end of the movie, I found myself wrestling with a little bit as if it was a too simplistic view on Bender's part mm. of a man who is quote unquote, this simple in the moment. It was so refreshing mm-hmm. to spend time with a man like this. Yeah. And let me add to the characterization. I think that's a good question I want to return to, but 
he has a simple life, but he has a vibrant intellectual life. Um, he's reading, it's Faulkner, right? Isn't he? Yeah. Is, yeah. He's reading. And, and I yeah. love the little, the little joke that he seems like exasperated by Faulkner at one point. Yeah. And it's kind of like, yeah, we've, we've all been there, but he's trying, he's trying. Um, and so the music, his love for music, he's, he's, he's interested. He has a deep intellectual life, I guess mm-hmm. is my point. Mm-hmm. Despite the fact that on the surface, it might seem simple. And I'm so glad you mentioned his smile. It's his defining characteristic. It's his yeah. instinct is to smile. He smiles at those plants you mentioned when he's spraying them every morning. He smiles at the sky most days, not all days, most days when he opens his front door, he immediately looks up at the sky and smiles. The guy he fans, so glad you called up that detail. He smiles at him before he fans him. Um, and in a way, you know, in the context of Vender's other films, especially his two most prominent ones, Wings of Desire and Paris, Texas, I think he embodies this overall air of gentleness that those Vender's films have. And he could almost, Hirayama could almost be one of those beneficent angels in Wings of Desire. He he floats through the city yeah, and is a little removed point. from everyone else mm-hmm. uh, and interacts with them, but, but only yeah. has so much power in how he can interact with them. And I also thought of Dean Stockwell's patient brother Mm -hmm. to Harry Dean Stanton's kind of erratic prodigal brother in Paris, Texas, and the way he deals with him. So, so there's definitely a through line there. And as you were describing him, it struck me as this idea of routine, but he's in Tokyo. He's a monk in a city. He's, he's amidst these bustling people. He has not removed himself from society to live this ascetic lifestyle He has that lifestyle, but he's within the city. And I think one of the reasons this movie is, I've come to love this movie, Adam. And I I haven't, you know, why bother do the, the, you know, the remake of my top 10 list and all that. That's pointless at this point, because technically this is a 2023 film. But, you know, I'm trying to figure out why. And I think it was clarifying for me the way this guy loves watching people and being among people. But he doesn't feel the need to interact directly with them. And and it, so it's not like I just resonate with that so much. Like sometimes I, I accuse myself of like, man, do you hate people? Like why, you know, like why are you not more social in certain ways? And, yeah. and I think this Josh, is your it. occasional misanthropy. I believe that's the right word is, is one of your most endearing traits. OK, but well, I don't know what that says about me. Thank you. But I, but this was kind of like, no, it's, you know, it's not that it's like, like there's nothing I would much rather be out like writing in a coffee shop. I don't want to talk to anybody in that coffee (laughs) shop. And, and this guy, Hirayama has, you know, something of a similar approach. He, when he looks at other people and maybe where, where we do have a point of distinction, his instinct is to smile. And I like to think on my best days, I get there too, but his instinct is to be bemused by humanity mm-hmm. in an appreciative way. And there is something so refreshing about seeing someone who lives that way. Um, and, and I think the movie is, is genuine in that. We'll get back to, and maybe at the end of this, we can talk about the, the, the final scene and how that works in this context. But, but I need to ask you what you thought about the use of music here. These, this American rock that he listens to on cassette tapes, primarily the seventies. Does that, does that seem right to you? 
probably. And um, it's it's a it's the only music in the film, I mm-hmm. believe. Right. Uh, yeah. When he when he plays this and and uh, I just was very curious as I'm watching this, what you thought of it. Well, I love the music itself. Right. One so that that helps. And it is such an interesting counterpoint in that we might not immediately think of it as the type of music that this older Japanese man might listen to. But it it does make more sense to me after thinking about Tokyo Ga in relation to the top five and this appreciation for the past, uh, an appreciation for the the originality of the past, I think even like, I'm just trying to make sense of this as you ask it, Josh, it wasn't something I wrote down any particular notes on. But what I mean by that is it's not as if this character, I think in his everyday life is somehow trying to recapture any part of his past. In fact, sure. He seems to be a character and you said all this very eloquently he seems to be a character who is emphatically living in the present. He's living in the moment in a way few of us are actually really capable of. And that that might be what actually we're most attracted to in him. And yet to to find that he still has this connection to this other culture and these other events and these other worlds that these characters are singing about, these stories that they're telling that are not his existence, that are that are not directly in correlation to his life. That that just makes you understand that he's got this this vision of the world. It makes you realize he's got this curiosity and that heightened intellectual awareness, like you mentioned. Yeah, and and the songs, as you said, are pretty much great all around. That doesn't hurt. I think the one that for me worked best in concert with what the movie was doing is is probably you know Lou Reed, Velvet Underground, Pale Blue Eyes, mm-hmm. and it's you know. It's not so much even the relationship being described, as I understand it in that movie, is, is you know, does not apply to this guy's life at all. But there's the, I guess it's like a ruminative groove the, the song has. And the one line that stands out to me, if I could make the world as pure and strange as what I see. And I thought, oh, that, that's kind of how Hirayama sees mm-hmm. the world. I mean, he he notes the, sh- he takes notice of the shadows and reflections that most of us miss. And, um, and I think that kind of, you know, worked in well in concert with that song, just in addition to the musicality of it, which, which is so great. Yeah. I mean, I think a couple real quick, a couple of things I'll mention that tie directly to that. I mean, what we learn about his hobby or really his kind of obsession, he's not just capturing <laughs> and, and repeating the capturing of a certain image, but he's, he's documenting it, whether or not he'll ever we won't get into too many details, but I don't know that it would qualify as a spoiler in this movie, Josh, but he's he's keeping this meticulous collection and this this record of these images that he's shooting on 35 millimeter film. And it's as if he's keeping it because he's keenly aware of the importance of the moment and how it's always changing, even if the image itself is fundamentally the same, and and he wants to hang on to it. Mm. He, he knows it's fleeting, and so it's as if he wants this record of it that he can go back and point to. And it makes me think of a moment that I love from the opening narration of Tokyo Ga, where Vendor's comments on the fact that, and I, I alluded to this a little bit, but he he says that a few years removed from being in Tokyo, as he looks back on the imagery— one thing that occurs to him is that 
he realizes that it's all kind of a blur, but it's all kind of a blur because he was viewing it through a camera lens. Hmm. And he had that remove and distance from it. And if he was actually just there and observing and was in the moment himself, as opposed to someone with a certain quest in mind, with a certain objective and looking through that lens, then he would have actually probably been able to process and retain that image. So it just, for me, is kind of caught up in this this project of his where he seems to be determined to to maintain this record of these images that he's shooting. Yeah, that is a curious little mystery about him that we, that we see this project he has, but it's never fully explained and we're left to kind of surmise what that might mean to him and, and mean to the larger ideas at play in this movie. I wanted to just, you know, give a compliment to the screenplay here, which is maybe not what we think of first, we have to get to Koji Yakusho's performance a little bit. Of course, that's that's gotten a lot of attention. But Vendors wrote this with Takuma Takasaki. And what I love about it is how it complicates this routine we've been describing. But to my mind, never overly dramatically. There, there are maybe two or three disruptions mm-hmm. to this routine. And I feel like another movie, a lesser movie, might have waited to the you know, three quarter mark and given us one of those disruptions and blown it up into the big dramatic conflict of the film. Right. But, and again, this isn't spoilers because these are so small, but he has his coworker um, who one day tries to get him to sell these cassette tapes for money because he needs some cash for a date that totally throws off Hirayama's routine completely. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it seems in the context of how his life works, this could be catastrophic, Right. But what happens? Well, yeah, he's thrown off. He's frustrated. Uh, I think he loses some sleep maybe that night. And so when he wakes up and looks at the sky the next morning, he yawns and doesn't smile. Yeah. But he recovers. It's, yeah. It's not Jean Dielman. It's not it's, catastrophic. <laughs> I thought about Jean Dielman. Of course. You have and, to. And I was yeah. almost like, is this, is this, you know, a point of comparison? I was uh-huh. like, no, for exactly the point you made, right? He, yeah. he just kind of, he recovers and, you know, later on. Again, this isn't really a spoiler because of how the movie handles it. A niece shows up, and that leads to him uh, meeting his estranged sister. Another movie. for a movie. second, sorry to interrupt, but for a second, did you think we might be entering a Koreda film? Right, exactly. But it doesn't go there. Exactly, Adam. Yeah. And, yeah. and that's not to you know minimize a Koreda film, no. but, but that is exactly what would happen. We, we would then be embroiled, and no, that situation, this is what happens generally in life, Right. We, we don't have these huge dramatic, you know, screenwriting 101 conflicts that mm-hmm. we solve and then things come to an end. Yeah, no, we have lives. We have lives of routine. We're managing as best as we can. They get disrupted and hopefully we're still at our best in meeting those disruptions, but we aren't always. This guy manages to pretty much be able to, which brings us, and this is an issue of performance too, I think to, to the final scene, and this will be a spoiler. I think. Do you want to say okay. something about the performance before we get well, there? Well, I mean, I maybe have one or two more things I think we could get into before we get there. Do okay. To save, let, let's save the spoiler. Let's go ahead and put it at the end again. Yeah. If you don't mind. Okay. Well, I do want to say about the performance generally that what Yukusho does that's so wonderful here, you talked about the smiles. We both talked about the smiles, but it'd be one thing if it was all smiles and I don't mean that then the movie goes into this dramatic terrain where he shows us this deeper emotional side to the point that you just made. 
there is though he brings enough depth to the performance that even underneath those smiles there's just that little tinge there's that that tinge of emotion and sometimes there's that real tinge of pain and that that pain again i'm with you to the movie's credit vendors doesn't need to give us the litany of that pain mm. we understand it through the character we understand it through the performance i think we understand it through his face i think it tells us everything we need to know yeah and it, and it's a largely wordless performance yeah you know which is worth pointing out and and yeah i i'm with you there's just he's has a simple life but he's not a simpleton it's yes. this is not a simpleton smile and the reason we know that is all in the performance i feel Last thing I want to say, just because it's a touch I love, and I wonder if you picked up on it, and, and not only that, I wonder if you have a different read on it than I do, because it seems to me quite intentional that we get this recurring shot, and I tried to notice when something might change in the routine that would clue me into something. Did you notice that his routine. You're playing John Dealman now. You tried to John Dealman this Dielman. thing. I am. When his <laughs> when his day begins, yeah, so that, that does complicate it too. When his day begins and everything is definitely moving correctly, do you notice how he he always stops at like a mantle, some kind yes. of shelf, right? And he grabs something and then next to that something is a watch, but he never grabs the watch. Mm-hmm. He doesn't ever grab it. It just sits there, Josh. And so we we see this shot, this recurring shot. Now, the Jean Dielman complication would be, as things unravel, is that when he finally picks up the watch? But there is a moment. There is a moment. I noted it at the 61-minute mark when he puts the watch on. Yeah, I that's what I was going to say. I asked myself, what's different? What's different about the day? And my read on what's different about that day is... It's the first non-work day. So it's a little bit counterintuitive, but not for this character. For this character, his work day is completely defined by the routine. Correct. He knows the hour and minute and yes. second by his routine. He does not need the watch. Yeah. But on the off day, even if some of the activity of that off day is filled with things he probably does on a recurring basis, it is a day where nevertheless, he may actually need that watch to know what time it is. So it's it's a little bit of an indicator. My take on it was that it was vendors indicating to us that when he falls into that rhythm, that watch is an extraneous object to him. Yeah. Yeah, it is counterintuitive because his day of leisure is when he needs to keep track of time. Exactly. <laughs> and <laughs> I do, as you were talking, I, I do remember that he does pick it up at one point. Um, so that all tracks for me as well. I think that okay. makes sense. So I'm going to save. We're going to stop there. You're going to save for the end of the show here, podcast version. We'll get into the last shot. And also, I'm going to get into a fellow critic's negative take on this film. I'm going to spring this on you, Josh. Oh, boy. But but I think it's worth getting into. It's something we don't normally do on the show. We're not going to get into it fully because I'm just reading it and you're just hearing it. But it's something that I think is at least worth talking about because it's it's doing what good criticism is supposed to do which is make strong points strongly observe points that occasionally challenge your reaction to a film and i love it i'm throwing it out there in that context not in the context to 
deny either of the experiences that we had with this film. So we'll get to that when we get to some spoiler talk later. Perfect Days is out now in limited release, and it is fortunately expanding wider this weekend and next. I know, I think February 23rd is when it's opening here in Iowa City, Josh, and going to Madison near where Sam is. So, you know, look out for it if it's not already playing near you. Next week on the show for us, we're, it seems, skipping the weekend's quote-unquote big releases. No plans right now to see Madam Webb with Dakota Johnson and Sydney Sweeney, or One Love, the Bob Marley biopic with Kingsley Benadire and Lashana Lynch, though I do love that cast. Instead, producer Sam had an idea that might not be a bad one, especially, Josh, since you were already planning it. You, that dutiful critic doing your homework, it hadn't even occurred to me. <laughs> we're thinking about possibly re-watching and reconsidering, might be too strong of a word, because maybe we won't have any different reaction, Dune with part two coming out. Yeah. I mean, I'd, I'd already set aside 14 hours tomorrow to watch it again. Yeah. So yeah. why not talk about it? So a Dune rewatch probably, and or a little film spotting madness, best of the fifties blind spotting. We're leaning toward 1959's anatomy of a murder, a major fifties blind spot for both of us directed by Otto Preminger. Here we go. Jimmy Stewart recently talked about, on our last show, Rear Window versus Vertigo. And of course, we've talked so much over the past few months about Anatomy of a Fall and Anatomy of Murder is a movie that certainly had an influence on that film from Justine Trier. So Jimmy Stewart, Ben Gazzara, Lee Remick, George C. Scott, and an Otto Preminger film that neither of us have seen. We'll see if we can fit that in as well. In addition to that, Film Spotting Madness 2024 does officially begin, Josh, with the playing round. Sam and I, we did some work. We had a Zoom call over the weekend. We got a bracket in working order. We made some changes. Very, very productive. Almost called you. Almost was the over you. under two hours with I mean, that Zoom call? The Zoom call was shorter than two hours. Total time spent. Oh, not, oh boy. Not under two hours. I think we've got 13 Right now, 13 play-in matchups to help us determine the final 64-film bracket, and 13 play-ins are what happened when your shortlist has 96 movies on it. Bless you both. Bless do. you both for your work. Yeah, thank you. Those play-ins will go live on Monday the 19th, so be ready. Monday the 19th is when you will be able to vote filmspotting.net slash madness, or we'll have a link right there on the main page of our website, filmspotting.net. The current deeply flawed film spotting poll, which I think is so flawed, I don't want to even talk about it. I don't know why we're promoting it again. Everyone should stay away from it. It's, haven't, it's you, haven't you already voted? Didn't you it's vote? It's unfair. Yeah, it's unfair. It's cruel. <laughs> it's cruel and unusual punishment. It's asking you to weigh in on the Coen Brothers filmography. They haven't made a film together since 2018's The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, but Ethan Coen's Drive Away Dolls opens next week. We do plan on talking about that here on the show. It's not going to be before it's released, Josh. We're not really seeing any word yet about critic screenings. And actually, that make you worry. Did you get something? Newsflash. Yeah. I'm seeing it tomorrow. They did okay. add a last minute screening. So I'm Ooh. excited about that. But yeah, okay. I think our plans on the show will be getting to it mm. the week after release. I just checked my inbox. You're right. A last minute press screening. It's an. An Ethan Cohn film. Why Why are we getting a last-minute press screening? I mean, it's not technically last-minute. It opens in like a week and a half. Okay, I'm 
I'm just I'm just using the word that even the publicist used. Josh, sure. In the email. Well, they alerted us to the screening the day okay. before it took place. That ah. is last minute. That's true. Okay, a last minute alert, not so much a last minute screening. Okay. Well, here's the poll question. It asks you to choose a single decade of the Coen Brothers filmography, and the catch is that. Any decade you don't choose goes into the incinerator. The films don't exist anymore. The other catch is that if you're thinking, well, this is easy, how about the 90s? Miller's Crossing, Barton Fink, Fargo, Lebowski. Well, sorry, that's not how Sam is defining a decade. He's got his own (laughs) definition of decade. He's going 85, and it does make sense. Begrudgingly, I get it. That's, That's when Blood Simple came out. 85 to 95, 96 to 06, 07 to 8. It's actually not 18. It's more 17 because we left out Buster Scruggs, I thought. So the results so far indicate that this is a much more challenging approach, Josh. We've got 96 to 06 in a virtual tie with 07 to 17, somehow trailing. But maybe the right choice is that 85 to 95 window. Hmm. Yeah, because look at this, Blood Simple, Raising Arizona, Miller's Crossing, Barton Fink, Hudsucker Proxy, all in that decade. Uh, yeah, I have, to your point about this being ridiculous, I have not voted yet. I will not be voting now. I will be abstaining at least I until abstain. next week. I abstain, Sam. <laughs> hit hit a gavel or something, Josh, I think, when you <laughs> abstain from here on out. Vote now, leave a comment, and I hope to feature some comments from everyone saying how diabolical Sam is filmspotting.net this week on our sister podcast the next picture show they're not up to any sort of nonsense instead it's part two of their road trip trios pairing so they are looking at alexander payne's oscar nominated the holdovers that one got a best picture nod with hal ashby's the last detail from 1973 you can get the next picture show every tuesday wherever you get your podcasts All right, Adam, it's a massacre theater week on the show, the part of Film Spotting, where we perform a scene. You get a chance to win a Film Spotting prize. A couple weeks back, we massacred this scene. Cut from the DA to an upmarket suburban neighborhood. A couple have a fight. He leaves in a fit, gets in a car. It's a same rainy night. The car spins out on a road, goes into a ravine. The body is swept away. Now, when the police examine the car, they find the brakes have been tampered with. It's murder. The DA decides to go for the big one. He's going to put the wife in the gas chamber. But the DA falls in love with the wife. But of course he falls in love with the wife. But he puts her in the gas chamber anyway. Then he finds out the husband is alive. That he faked his death. The DA breaks into the prison, runs down death row. But he gets there too late. The gas pellets have been dropped. She's dead tell you there's not a dry eye in the house she's dead she's dead she's dead because that's the reality the innocent die that was richard e grant and tim robbins in 1992's the player written by michael tolkien and directed by robert altman that massacre was part of our oscars catch-up show we reviewed american fiction and rustin so what in the world do either of those movies have to do with the player Here's Joe Goad in Middleton, Wisconsin, the player, and specifically a scene that I think of all the time. It features Richard Grant, 
before he becomes corrupted by the system. And while he still has his admittedly pretentious but still genuine passion for making a film true to his image, of course, spoilers, he becomes corrupted by the conclusion of the film and goes with a much more Hollywood ending starring Julia Roberts and Bruce Willis. Thematically, it matches Monk's journey in American fiction, where he learns to play the game in order to find commercial success while more than likely betraying his higher morals. There you go, Joe. Here's Ken Link from Flagstaff, Arizona. Both films are about, among other things, a writer's creative work spiraling beyond their control. Other connections include both films' Oscar nominations for both Best Film and Best Screenplay. Well played, gentlemen, as ever. Yeah, Ken, absolutely. When I suggested The Player, I was thinking about both films having Oscar nominations for Best Film and best screen. Just go with it. You can take it to the bank. Trip Burton in Woodridge, Illinois. I wouldn't have known that Josh was going for Princess Diana, but his spot-on Voldemort imitation did not take away from the brilliance of that monologue from the player. Cut from the DA to an upmarket suburban neighborhood. A couple have a fight. Hey, sure. In retrospect, I was doing Voldemort. One more comment here from Andy Moss comes to us from London. For your consideration, Josh Larson, I read Richard E. Grant's latest memoir at the start of January and rewatched a couple of his films at the time. Although I forgot he was the person in the player who gave that pitch, within seconds, I realized he was doing Grant and I could picture the scene in my head. Take that trip, Burton. Josh Larson, indeed, the Lon Chaney of podcasting. Are you sure Adam exists and he's not doing the whole podcast himself every week? In looks only. The Lon Chaney of podcasting in looks only. (laughs) <laughs> Although if I was misremembering that and it was actually Jonathan Price or some such, he wasn't very good. And I take that back. <laughs> Richard E. Grant, Jonathan Price. Just kind of pulled the rug out from under British me there guys. at the yeah. end. <laughs> They're all the same. Thank you, Andy. Thank you, everyone who submitted a comment. Thank you, everyone who entered. We do have a winner, a semi-brimming film spotting hat, Josh. It must have been the Voldemort that threw everyone off. Mm. Reach in. And pick out the winner. Our winner is Tim Goodwin from St. Louis. Congratulations, Tim. Email feedback at filmspotting.net and we will set you up with your very own film spotting t shirt or your very own film spotting tote bag. Or if you're not a film spotting family member, we'll give you a trial membership, get some bonus show access, get archive access. Email us feedback at filmspotting.net to claim your prize. Is that everything? I mean, it seemed like you said quite a bit more than that. We move on now to this week's edition of Massacre Theater. It's one, Josh, that I think probably needs a few more hints, but Mm. everyone who gets it, everyone who recognizes it immediately, they'll know the context. They'll know why we're tying it into this week's show. Yeah, it. Well, one hint might be it absolutely breaks the rule you had for many years that Sam uh-huh. and I finally, after many tries, pummeled through yeah. that it must be Massacre Theater must be a movie you like. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. Or or a movie someone likes. <laughs> I'll just go oh. with movie someone likes. Oh, you just stepped on a hornet's nest, sir. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I have this one. Here's a hint. I have this one lower in the franchise. Okay. Okay. So I'm giving you a little clue. Now, here's here's where we're going to maybe not have enough fun with this because I have to do one of these characters and I'm not as good with the voices. I'm not I'm not the Lon Chaney of podcasting like you are. Josh. Or are you? Or are you? No, maybe it's no, you doing both voices not. all this time. <laughs> but Sam is claiming that the character I'm portraying speaks with an Australian accent. Yet 
we both just rewatched this scene and maybe heard one or two words that sounded Australian. So I'm lost. I think there's a word. There's a word you can really lean into the Australian if you choose. Mm, I wonder which one it is. Yeah. I, I do not know where to start with an Australian <laughs> accent. It only matters where you land. This is this is brutal. I'm not doing it. I can't do it. So I will see whatever comes out of my mouth in the moment. That's it. That's it. That's how I approach most reviews. This is this is how Massacre Theater goes. So meanwhile, I have a little accent work myself. I apologize in advance. (laughs) Well, you're not going to be alienating an entire country, just an entire part of the country. That's true. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to start it off. You give me the action. I think I started off. I thought, oh yeah, you're right. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> we're yeah. we're already off to a good start here. And action. You wouldn't have that problem with a V8. Boys, all they care about is who's got the biggest engine. I'm a guy. It's in my DNA. So y'all race with these things, huh? Cute little toys. You know, I almost didn't recognize you without your slippers on. Don't you mean wabaki? Neither, right? You're a quick learner. So where are you from anyway? Yeah. <laughs> no, Don't I laugh. Mean, Don't you dare laugh. Where, where, no, I mean, where you live, where you come from. Does it really matter where I come from? And see, was here the you word? You got the word. You got was the it word. Really? I was so proud that I laughed. Well, I, I thought it might be one of the other two I leaned into. I tried to lean into to engine and mm. learner i did I, yeah. I hit learner pretty well those those just came off as womanly <laughs> did they come off as womanly in british though that's my go-to <laughs> exactly i think I british australian here. you know for massacre theater purposes all the same if you know what film we just massacred email the movie's title and your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net your deadline is monday February 26th, we will select the winner randomly from all the correct entries and announce in a couple of weeks. I thought I thought your southern accent was great, Josh. I've not noticed it before, but you're proper beautiful. <laughs> you two are two of my best mates. Gang, gang, gang. That's a bit of the trailer from the new film, How to Have Sex, which is currently playing in limited release. It's the debut feature from UK director Molly Manning Walker. And we're going to put it on the short list for the Golden Brick, Josh. Add it to the list. How to Have Sex debuted at last year's Cannes Film Festival and was nominated for three 2024 BAFTA awards. That's the British Oscars, basically. These include Outstanding British Film of the Year and Outstanding Debut from a British Writer or Director. In the film, three teen girls, played by Mia McKenna-Bruce, Lara Peake, and Enva Lewis, go on a Rites of Passage holiday. Rites of Passage, of course, aren't always the most pleasant experiences, which is pretty much what we see. Now, based on the trailer, Adam... I guess you could say the film has something in common with a couple of other rites of passage movies we've nominated for the Golden Brick before. There is the Brits on Holiday setting that evokes Charlotte Wells' After Sun. Uh, some pool scenes, pretty different from the pool scenes we get here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> However, uh, there's also Eliza Hitman's Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always about a teen girl who travels to New York City with a friend to get an abortion. Again, a different context, but a fraughtness, perhaps, to both films. 
um, in that situation. I guess, would you say How to Have Sex has anything else in conversation with those two films? Is its own thing? Uh, another, I'll throw this at you as well. You know, it, is it this, is it a spring breakers type movie, you know, kids going to, to live it up for a week, debauched comedy slash dramedy. Uh, I'm pitching that at you because this was really it's dark. a great film. This was really spring dark. Breakers is a great film. Uh, I, I knew I shouldn't have brought that up. We don't need to relitigate that nonsense. But yeah, I mean, this this thing, I didn't know what to expect, to be honest mm-hmm. with you. No, I knew I very little about it, except that yeah. it had been acclaimed. Um, it was a debut and seemed like something we should check out for The Golden Brick. I think it's a good film. Obviously, mm-hmm. we're giving it the nod. But wow, did this thing get dark on me. It does. I I didn't. Well, I should say this. Did it occur to me when I saw these young women going to a foreign country to go on vacation, I immediately did have a little After Sun flashback, but there's nothing about the film otherwise that really makes me think of After Sun, and I wouldn't put it in the same realm as Never Rarely, Sometimes Always, either. You're getting closer with Spring Breakers, but for me, this film is Spring Breakers mixed with Andrea Arnold's Fish Tank. It's not doing what either of those films ultimately are doing, but it exists somewhere neatly in between where it is about these characters who are 100% young women in this case, very young, unlike the women in spring breakers, they're 16 years old, I think is what we find out about. Yeah, I don't, is that right? I, I was trying to figure out cause they talk I about how old are we going to say we are right. You and, know, and they act like 18 is old though. When they say it, the That's way true. I remember it. So That's true. I think I saw somewhere that they're 16 Okay, and they are going to this country to live it up, they are saying some of the same or using the the same, I wouldn't say exact expressions, but the same attitude as the young women in Spring Breakers when they arrive for vacation. And they have a mission, which is like a lot of young men in these scenarios, all they can talk about is getting laid. And in one case, we understand, I think we understand pretty early on, if I'm remembering correctly, that one of the characters, the one played by McKenna Bruce, who is Tara or or Taz, that that she's a virgin. So this is a this is a big deal for her. This truly is a rite of passage. But it has that it has that fish tank element, not that kitchen sink milieu at all. But it it is much closer to I think a character study of these young women than anything like what we see in the Harmony Corinne film. Right. Like sure. this, this film for me and, and what, what made it really stand out ultimately is that it's a film that you think is going to go down some pretty well-worn paths. And then you see that Walker really does have her eye on and is focusing her attention on that character, the Taz character. And it's about her journey and in this case, it's a it's a pretty tumultuous one over the course of a few days that she spends there. But the for me, what I mean by a character study, Josh, in this in this case is you start to realize the idiosyncrasies of the relationship, the nuances of the relationships between these three girls. Yes. You realize the insecurities and the jealousies and the way those manifest themselves and the way that that Taz character is, you know, kind of tragically her, her self image and perception is completely affected 
by the slights, the little slights, sometimes probably even unintentional, sometimes very intentional, the slights of her, of her friends and, and the pressures from other people, even if sometimes those pressures aren't even that direct in some cases, yet she still feels as if she has to live up to a certain image. And that's really what the, what the film becomes about. And then at the same time, I'll say there's that other character in the film, one of the other girls, her friend has his friend who is someone that really seems to be applying a lot of that pressure. And yet I was able to always see her too, as someone who's not just the bad girl in this instance, but she's someone who has those same insecurities and mm-hmm. vulnerabilities that Taz does. And those come out, those show themselves, those come out in the form of sometimes her being a little bit of a bully, but it wasn't as if the movie was trying to use her as a bully type character. I saw enough layers to all of these characters. And I think that's really where the strength is. Yeah. Interesting. I actually, I actually found that character sky, the friend sky played by Laura peak to be, to be a little broadly drawn for me. I get it. I get it. But I like some of those, some of those, some of those faces to me really showed something. I was able to see some hurt behind it. Sure. That's there. That's there. It's not a think that even, even she isn't always totally aware of what she's doing. Other times it's, it's there. It's a horrible milieu for everyone. I think it's the takeaway, like this town that is overtaken by these teenagers and, and it's on, it's on, it's in a Greek city, Malia and on Crete. Yeah. And, and it's just like, it, it brings out the worst in everyone. Uh, unless you're basically, unless you're one of the other characters, we meet a predator. If you're a predator, like you're living, man, you're living. And so to see these young girls here and, and trying to find their way is, is kind of harrowing. It's very harrowing. Um, it's harrowing for the guys too. I mean, I think we meet a, a male character badger who is, um, you know, I would say somewhat distinct in that he's also playing badgers played by Sean Thomas playing the part he's expected to play. In some instances, but it's not necessarily who he is. But again, he's in this milieu. So this is how I I need to act. Mm -hmm. And then he has interactions with Tara, the the main character, where they connect over things more than the prospect of sex. They both share kind of a dorky sense of humor and corny jokes. And there are scenes of them. Um, and you realize, okay, there, there's something that's like a seed of an actual relationship here. <laughs> Otherwise it's all just like, you know, it, it's predatorial. And, and so I, I understand the sky friend being caught up in that as well. Um, but I guess where that held me back a little bit is that Tara, this main character is very smart. And the disconnect for me is that she would recognize a friend being that bad of a friend to her. Um, because we recognize her intelligence and her social, this is one reason she's struggling with this milieu is she has a social intelligence and she realizes what's going on. Um, I think it's a really strong performance by Mia McKenna Bruce. There are moments here where she's looking at herself in the mirror and trying to figure this out. And those, I imagine no acting background whatsoever, which is imminently clear in the show, but I have to imagine to, to do a mirror scene like that, where you let the audience in just enough to her inner thoughts without being too obvious about them, um, has to be one of the hardest tasks for acting. And I think McKenna Bruce pulls that off. She's very funny, as I mentioned. She's very smart. And I love the description of her. 
you know, they're playing, they're at this hotel where there are people on staff just trying to keep the party going. So there's a contest at some point and he's got a mic and he's like, yeah, come on, you come on up. And he calls her just as an aside, little flower. And I thought how perfect that is because Tara is also somehow sweet and maybe, maybe that's the wrong word to use, but there is a sweetness to her still that hasn't been, hasn't been shorn off like it has for someone like Sky. Um, and, and I think that's, you know, that's just an interesting way of looking at this rite of passage experience The the filmmaking here is very sharp early on right away. You know, we should know where this is going because we have those early scenes of them screaming, exciting, arriving at Malia. I think it's Tara who says we're in Malia, baby. And then, you know, they're just jumping up and down their beds, hard cut, smash cut to the three of them at the beach. And the next thing Tara says, it's kind of cold. And it, it's just like, right then I was like, oh, this is going to be different, than a lot, as to your point, than a lot of these movies within this setting that I've seen before. So, so yeah, I think, you know, Molly Manning Walker is making a debut here. A lot of strong choices that there's a sequence. This isn't giving anything away really, but fairly early on, there's a next morning and they don't know you know, where did, what happened with Tara the night before, right? And there's the way the camera slowly pushes, there are two balconies at the hotel, two sets of friends, like slowly pushes on each group until they all, it all dawns on them that she's not at either room, I think is just very smart. Sort of this insidious, almost a horror film technique Mm -hmm. for this movie, the use of sound um, the sound really is a standout here, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. The, the way like from Tara's perspective, again, where the there's a point where she's discombobulated and the the partying goes in and out and we get this muffled. Or how about that sequence where she's willing herself to have fun? It's at the white party and it's like, I, I don't care what I've been through, what I'm experiencing, what I really feel about this. I know my job. My job, the rules of this place, this is supposed to be like hedonistic freedom, but it's the most, it's the place with the most laws you'll find anywhere because you have to behave a certain way and do a certain thing or you'll not fit in. So she knows these rules. So she's jumping up and down, willing herself to have fun at this dancing and the sound disappears. And all we hear is her breathing, her labored breathing. And it, it looks so awkward compared to her movements and just that formal choice um, was incredibly striking to me and, and marks, you know, a filmmaker who really knows what they're doing. Yeah, I think the the sound really puts us in the mindset of the the Tara character and this sense of of detachment she feels from everyone around her and and sometimes that detachment from her surroundings. We understand through the sound design that she's going through something a little bit differently than than her other characters or the other characters that they're meeting. I like the use it's almost exclusive, I want to say, to the film overall, but it's not like I, I jotted down every shot, Josh, especially every shot in the the hotel rooms or, or the motel rooms. Every shot there seems to be handheld, and mm. it adds to that sense of chaos. Yeah, sounds right. And and you really do. It, it makes you feel discombobulated <laughs> as, as much as the, the, the girls and the other characters are, and, and usually there's, there's a lot of sound. There's a lot of music, a lot of noise. There is also a lot of drinking. So all of the characters are in a little bit of a disoriented state. And the camera nicely matches with that. I, I'm with you. I think, you know, 
the word you're looking for, even though I know it gets overused a lot, talking about the Taz character, she's she's someone who does have a little bit of street smart sense about her, but she does have an innocence. She does have a certain innocence that I think maybe some of the other characters, or at least the Badger character, is drawn to, and unlike other Predators, he's drawn to in a way that doesn't make him immediately want to exploit that innocence or take advantage I'm going to give you two other I words here, though, Josh, as we go back. I just want to clarify. Do you think that her inability in the film to recognize the way Sky is treating her? Are you saying you think that's a little bit of a limitation of the writing? Maybe it's it's just it didn't ring true to her character, I guess. This is a yeah. this is a character. And there's another instance of this, too. You know, the night that she does disappear, apparently to the rest of them, we find out fairly soon after what does happen to her. And that just struck me too, not in tune with her character. These three have been so close. The three, yeah. you know, young mm-hmm. women who are together and, and they're, they're not dumb. Like they know we have to stay together. Right. We have to be smart about where we are. You know, it seemed odd that Tyra didn't at least tell them yeah. what ha- like where I yeah. am. At I, I get it. I get it. I felt that too. But in both cases, that was for me a moment where I had to, I had to shut off. I had to shut off, and I don't want to say shut off the part of my brain that was thinking about it. I mean, shut off the part of my brain where I'm saying, I'm thinking like me in that situation, you know, and put myself in the in the shoes of that character. And I think that when I was talking about her journey, part of that journey is her increasing detachment from her friends. Mm, mm-hmm. And so that that moment where she becomes, this isn't probably the best word, but becomes so unhinged from reality that she she wanders off and she we know what that follows if you've seen the right film, right you right, know right what, what I get immediately you. right precedes that so it makes sense that there'd be that little bit of a schism that That's happens true. within her i also think you know what i mean when i talk about it not being my experience i have to put myself in the shoes of this 16 year old girl on vacation with her friends. And because she's driven again so much by the I word is the insecurity. And then you also have to remember the immaturity that she is inherently incapable. I think of, of processing everything that is coming her way. And I think that that's what the, the movie shows us as a character who ultimately does unravel a little bit under the weight of that. Yeah, I, I, I she can't see it in sky, I guess, is what I'm saying. We have seen enough movies and we're mature enough to see when someone who we think is our friend is actually really annoying and she really needs to find new friends. But that girl wouldn't think that way. I don't think I don't know. I, I, I hesitate to go that far because I don't want to undersell. I know what you mean. It's it's a very impulsive age. That is absolutely true. I'll give you that I word. Um, but but I also don't want to undersell their emotional intelligence. Um, and and it's related to just Tara's overall intelligence. I feel like she's very perceptive. She's presented from the start as an observant character, mm-hmm. and she knows how to act like like. And it's not always acting when she's jumping up and down in the bed and screaming like she's being authentic. She's excited, mm-hmm. right? But but she also is is observing. She's trying to fit into this social situation, play by the rules, um, in many ways, and so. I don't know. I'm a little I'm a little more hesitant to say 
that this is beyond her understanding yeah, all yeah. this. Yeah, and, and I want to be clear. I think I can still think of her. I do think of her as still a very nuanced, complicated character, but I can also see her as someone who is in a completely new milieu, is around people who it seems like she has spent most of her life being attached to. And she's a bit of the I tag along, I guess. Yeah, is what, and, yeah and that's true. Is, and she is inherently, there is something inherently different about her. The movie exposes uh, about yeah. her character. She, she reacts to situations differently than the other two characters do. And so I think, I think I can still see her as, as that complicated and intelligent character, but still recognize that there are going to be moments where she's not going to quite have the emotional intelligence that a girl may be a few years older might have. Yeah. You do get the sense of the three friends. She's, she's been a little bit behind the other mm-hmm. two in certain mm-hmm. ways and, and constantly playing catch up. So, and even that comes into, they talk about their academics, right? The other two, as they're on this vacation, they're getting test scores back. Yes. And I believe the other two get high scores and she finds yes. out that hers aren't as good. And so she's a little bit left behind there as well. That's it. Yeah. Lastly, just want to mention you, you used, I think a couple times words, maybe even said horror. And there's, there's nothing about this film in terms of its style. There's some things that happen that, that we can view very negatively or, or find uncomfortable to watch. There's nothing about the film that in terms of genre or style is aping a horror movie. And yet when you said it, Josh, it made me think, Oh yeah, that's it. That's what I've been thinking of. I think we get the shot twice. I don't know if Tara's in the center of it both times or not, but I think we get the shot twice, which is this setting, this town, the morning after. Oh and yeah. What it reminds <laughs> me of is it looks like fricking Danny Boyle 28 days later. It's, <laughs> it's as if there has been a zombie apocalypse <laughs> and the place is so desolate in the daylight and so utterly destroyed (laughs) by the way everyone there has treated it the night before that her walking down the middle of the street makes you feel like she's the only person in the world the day after the zombie apocalypse (laughs) and 28 days later okay so that that makes me want to pose a question to you as two you know men in their late 40s would you rather be stuck in danny boyle's 28 days later london or actual Malia. <laughs> oh, you know the answer to that one. <laughs> Give me the zombies. the zombies. Give yeah, me the zombies, baby. <laughs> I couldn't take it. I couldn't take it. All right. How to Have Sex is currently playing in limited release. To keep track of all of our nominations for this year's Golden Brick, you can go to filmspotting.net slash bricks. Josh, that's our show. If you want to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Letterboxd, Adam is at Film Spotting. I'm at Larson on Film. The current Film Spotting poll asks you to choose one Coen Brothers decade. Would you go with 85 to 95, 96 to 06, or 07 to 2017? If you would like a Film Spotting t-shirt or any other merch, go to filmspotting.net slash shop. Our show is listener supported. You can join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com. For as little as five bucks a month, you can listen to the show early and ad-free. Plus, you'll get a weekly newsletter, monthly bonus shows, and access to the entire Film Spotting archive. In that archive, you can find more City Set Top 5s. Yeah, we've done New York, we've done L.A., Chicago movies, we've done Boston movies, maybe maybe others. I think that's it. Also, we did do that bonus episode review of Vin Vendor's Paris, Texas. That was September 2020, so we were... Right in the midst of the pandemic, we just started producing bonus shows for then 
patrons. And I'm going to say that that experience of getting to rewatch that film 20 plus years after I saw it for the first time and getting to talk about it, that that's one of those shows that justifies for me doing bonus shows and hopefully justifies for for listeners paying for a family membership and getting to hear us talk about movies like that that we don't always get to fit in on the show. Yeah, and that was one sec- my second time seeing it as well and not that I didn't like it before, but maybe it's one of those films you mm-hmm. need to let sit and simmer yeah. and then come back to because it was a completely different revelatory experience on that second watch. Yeah, we needed to maybe get more sophisticated. Vim Benders didn't. <laughs> That's probably true. It's there. Filmspottingfamily.com. Out in wide release, Madam Webb, Bob Marley, One Love. For Valentine's Day, Amelie being re-released. Limited release, a movie I encouraged everyone to go see on our top 10 of the year show and also at our live show, The Rat Party in LA, where I talked about my favorite opening scene of the year. We heard from the director, The Taste of Things. My number six film of 2023 is playing at the Gene Siskel Film Center in Chicago in some other cities, expanding. So keep an eye out for The Taste of Things if you get a chance to see it on the big screen. Next week on Film Spotting, we, I think we're committing to the Dune rewatch. Are we? I mean, I'm committing. Are you committing? Sure. Let's go with that. <laughs> maybe, maybe some Otto Preminger as well. You'll have to tune in to find out. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Veronica Phillips. Special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. A little bit of spoiler talk here when it comes to Perfect Days. Not a movie I anticipated having to (laughs) have any spoiler talk, but it ends on, I think, a fairly provocative final shot. Back to our main character here, played by Koji Yakusho uh, Hirayama, the public toilet cleaner in Tokyo. He has, he's back to his routine, but this is after a night of encountering a man. We won't go into all the details who it's revealed. Um, is dying of cancer, receiving treatment, and they share a moment together um, under a bridge along the river. Unusually, to my point, when we were talking at him before, he engages with this person. He doesn't just observe him, right? He's kind of forced to. They're it, yeah, just the that's two of the them. Thing. Yeah, right. the man confronts him essentially and shares his story, and um, they share a playful moment, chasing shadows at Hirayama's suggestion. Again, he notices shadows. He notices reflections. Um, so this is, I think the very next morning, if I recall correctly, and he's driving, we've seen this shot many times, his face fills the screen. It sort of has that smile we've become familiar with. I forget the song he's listening to. This is probably crucial, but I don't remember exactly what song it is. I am forgetting as well. Okay. And we get one of these sequences. The one I think of Adam is, uh, George Clooney in that's where i was gonna go okay. michael clayton michael and call clayton. me by your name yeah 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 good another one this is this seems like sort of a um a gauntlet for actors yeah. like it's the face is just, we're just gonna hold your face for minutes yeah. on end and kind no of a go-to deep ambiguous ending for filmmakers yeah a little bit and and i'm, yeah. I'm sensing how you feel about how it's yeah well how it's used here so yeah. so tell me what your reservations were 
it's slight. It it doesn't really impact overall my take on the film, but I think it goes back to what I was saying in the review proper about how much I loved the way Yukusho showed us the smile, showed us the bemusement, sometimes the amusement, but then also showed us the pain. And it was more than enough for me. I saw the spectrum of, of humanity there in that, character mm. without without him going to extremes okay it's neither his his reactions are neither uh, big in terms of the humor or how how over the top for lack of a better word he's responding and the pain isn't that deep either we, we get a sense that it's always just something whatever pain is there and there there is pain there i mean look we we do see him break down at one point during the film i think that's a very well-earned moment there are allusions to a family dynamic that were enough for me without needing to get all the details but for the most part i liked the hints of pain i liked the hints of amusement and i thought it was enough and for at the end a very skilled actor but to see him have to hold that frame and he actually does something for me. I'd love to hear your take. He does something a little different from Clooney and and even Chalamet. Chalamet, it's more emotional than Clooney's version. But they're both actually, for me, existing more on screen than acting. Yeah. And and I felt I felt like he was acting here. It felt a little forced uh. to me. It it felt it felt like he both he both showed too much emotion occasionally and um, a bit of a forced laughter. Now I can read the forced laughter as something where he's responding. He's forcing himself to respond yeah. to the pain and balance things out. But I guess what I am saying, Josh is ultimately the moment didn't quite work for me. Maybe the way vendors hoped it would. Yeah. That, I, I can see all that. It, it's that it's the question that I thought was intriguing. And, and honestly, I may be with you if, vendors had decided to let Yakusho just play that as he'd played it throughout the film, I might've been more satisfied with that. You know, yeah. just let's leave us with this man to my point about these disruptions. He works his way through them and goes back to his routine. Let's leave us with this man as we found him changed by those disruptions in some subtle way, but essentially, you know, he goes on with life as most of us do. That might've been more satisfying to me. I was intrigued, however, about the possibility that these more surface emotions, and, and you kind of touched on this with mm. the laugh, is he trying to convince himself of something? Yeah. Um, and, and so the, there's that the question here of, you know, is he laughing because he's he's just glad to still be alive after encountering this dying man? And uh, this person who we know appreciates life, life as he is, as he experiences it and as he watches other people experience it. That's what makes him smile is when he sees people like enjoying life. So now has he found this anew, but it's mixed with knowing that someone he's made a connection with, however fleeting, is going to die. Um, or, you know, is this something new where he's he's suppressing the sadness he's experienced in a gesture of repression? Is he forcing mm -hmm. the smile now? Is he forcing the laugh, which kind of makes this tragic? Like, has, yeah. has this guy been broken and now it's like I'm at a new level of of awareness about the human experience, 
but, but I'm just going to make myself be that smiley guy. I always was. I don't think that's what ve- that wouldn't track with what vendors it, has been doing. It feels a little counter to what the movie doesn't it. Yeah, about. it does. Yeah. It does. But, but I guess there's still a reading of that where it's just about degrees and coming out of that situation and, and what he has gone through in the film, maybe, I don't know, this is going to sound too vague, but I, I think we can read that moment as being one where he's in a more vulnerable emotional state. And maybe that's something that will continue. It yeah. doesn't have to be necessarily a negative thing. No, it doesn't. But, but it is, it is a shift and it, it, it almost speaks to what I had admired about the film before. It didn't make that dramatic shift during any of these instances. So I think ultimately I'm with you that I would have been more, maybe less intrigued, but more satisfied by just holding on the face we'd come yeah. to know mm-hmm. intimately that slight smile with the, the understanding, you know, the wrinkles that have mm-hmm. that the wrinkles in the eyes that show us this isn't a naive smile. Yeah. It's an earned smile. That's actually a really perfect transition into where we'll close what I teased here. And it's perfect because we're both saying, I think that we loved the minimal minimalist approach of the performance. And this is a moment that even though it's minimal formally, just a camera stationary on his face, it's a moment from an actor's point of view that doesn't feel minimal. Right. Sure. And I was searching for, well, let me, let me frame it this way first. I'll just say, you know, one of the things we don't do very often on this show is really get into other criticism. We sometimes use other critics comments most often to support things we're saying or praising about a film, usually not a review, usually in a top five. We don't often dive into other criticism in in the review itself. And I think we don't have to get into this now, but I think there's a whole bunch of potential reasons for that, including I know we're both very hesitant about having our own experience with a movie affected by other people's opinions, certainly before we've seen it or we've written down our thoughts and we have a take on it. I mean, I, I know I'm susceptible to being influenced by others' opinions, especially if they're really well-argued. I know, too, that – or I I imagine that we both feel like, well, part of the show is, you know – we're, we're the critics. People are people are listening to hear us explain our experience, not funnel some other person's experience through our own prisms. But for me, honestly, it's just it's just mostly about time. I think I would engage with more criticism. The fact is, I just don't I I don't listen to other podcasts get into reviews of films. I don't read a lot of film criticism. I get prepared as I can for the show, and then I I have to turn the page and start thinking about the next show. And that's just a reality. I just don't engage with a lot of criticism. So you can can respond to any of that here in a moment, Josh. But for me, I just wanted to set that up a little bit and say, after watching this film, and I did have this little nagging, nagging feeling about something that I was like, I really liked that. But here's the thing I don't know how to quite reconcile. And I Googled some detail about the film that I wanted to just make sure I was right about something. And I saw, I saw the headline, like, you know, the Google results, something came up from Richard Brody in the New Yorker. And I read his headline and I read his, his subhead and I realized, oh, he, Brody, Brody doesn't like perfect days. And so I'm just going to give you a little bit of it and what he says. And maybe, you know, normally I would point out that a, a film critic never writes their own or for the most part, at least when we're talking about print publications, no, no writer 
writes their own headline and subhead. But in the case of Brody, he's the editor, so maybe he does. And his subhead on this review is perfect days and the perils of minimalism. And then his subhead is Vim Vender's homage to his beloved Japan is undone by an incuriosity about the country and about his movie's protagonist. So I'm just going to read you the opening paragraph. He says, fantasy comes in many forms. And one of them arises when a work of scrupulous realism strains plausibility to the point that it plays like mere wish fulfillment. Okay, I'm just going to say, first of all, as someone who does still try to think a lot about film criticism and is going to be teaching a class next semester about producing it, that's a great lead. It's a great, provocative, interesting, smart idea where he's opening up something about fundamental about cinema based on perfect days, as opposed to just taking a shot at perfect days. Then he says the German director, Vim Bender's latest film, perfect days is such a work set in Tokyo. It's a story about a man who's a manual laborer and in a sense, an artist, but it offers very little substance about either activity. Vendors follows an aesthetic principle of seemingly passive observation of withholding ambiguity and implication. He relates his protagonist's experience by means of images and moods, but rather than offering a stark and incisive vision, this aesthetic of tacitness delivers a sentimentalized prettiness. The results are merely vague in a way that seems willfully naive about Japan, about labor, and about art. And so I'm just going to give you two more sentences from the piece. He appears to have no friends, near or far, beyond his commercial relations. Whether he was ever in a romantic relationship is never suggested. The incuriosity is Vendor's own. Obviously, that's part of a larger point that he's making. He also says, Perfect Days comes off as Vendor's exaltation of humble and uncomplaining submission. Someone else is not his own. So a couple things there that were just wrapped up in a take I had when, when that final, when after I watched that final scene and I'm thinking about the film, Josh, the only thing that was still sticking with me about it was I was so caught up in and was so appreciative of this man's worldview and the way he, he seemed to find dignity in his work and didn't let the indignities of the world bother him. And, and Vendor seems fascinated by the diligence with which he does his work, how even though as one character, that other coworker points out, they're just going to get dirty later. Think about it. All the work we do, I go clean my kitchen. It's going to get dirty 24 hours later, but it's not a toilet. I mean, a toilet, the moment one person comes in, all the work you just got done doing for the last hour, what was the point? Right. And yet he doesn't he doesn't treat his job like that. And the feeling that was lingering with me was one of. It's hard to articulate, I certainly can't articulate it better than Brody does, but it was this this feeling like vendors seems to want to put on a sort of pedestal the banality of the work that this guy is doing. But is that actually doing justice to the work that he's doing? Or is it making the guy actually seem too too simple? Like someone who who isn't fully acknowledging his place in the world. I don't know, but this last line from from Brody kind of says it, where he's like, it's one thing, it's one thing to be the person that's that's doing the work. It's another thing, it's another thing to to be the filmmaker saying, the filmmaker who's saying, boy, I love that there are toilet cleaners in the world. That's a very different thing than being the toilet cleaner yourself. So the one thing I will say sort of in in i don't know if it's an agreement but in sympathy with this is 
the only response to this film I can remember seeing before I watched it myself. And I wish I could remember who said it. It might've been, I, I don't even know where it was, but something about the fact that like, these are awfully clean public bathrooms he has to encounter. And I thought, oh, that would be weird if this is a story of a man who's cleaning public toilets and it's always neat. And so I had that in my head going into your point of like, this is why I avoid reading other reviews before mm-hmm. I see something. But it's kind of hard with a movie that, you know, technically opened uh, two months ago now. Um, I got to say, when I saw it within, when I experienced it within the context of everything else going on, that bothered me less than I thought it would. Um, I get the point. I get the critique. And the movie probably would have improved if he had included a scene of Hirayama entering a public toilet where the last the last people in there had been the three girls from How to Have Sex, right? It's just like vomit spewed mm-hmm. everywhere. Um, I think that would have been a better film. Is it a debilitating loss to this movie? No. And and Brody is a is a critic I greatly respect, I believe, to your point. I've cited him in support of my own takes on films many times. I think this argument would have more weight for me if it came some, from a Japanese critic. Um, th- this idea of like, it's not recognizing these issues of, you know, I, I forget exactly how he termed it, mm-hmm. but labor, Japanese labor. And, you know, these are, these are probably very specific to that cultural context. And I do look in a movie like this, which I did, what is the involvement of Japanese creators in this film? And, and in our review, I talked about the, the co-screenwriter. Takuma Takasaki. And you look at the credits and there are a number, not thoroughly, you know, the cinematographer, Franz Lustig, I have to imagine, not Japanese, but there are a number of creative voices here, um, Japanese names involved. And so I like, I'm going to give credence to that, that sort of informing the vision of this film a little bit more than Brody's argument when it's not something I picked up on myself. Yeah. I mean, I, I can see that, I guess, but for me, it, it's even an expression of something not only that I was reacting to in the film, but that I was reacting to in myself. And this, again, is what good criticism does, and it's what good movies do in terms of sometimes making you making you really wrestle with this stuff. And what I'm wrestling with is that it occurred to me before reading Brody, it occurred to me that when I'm writing things in my notes like, and trying to express in a very sincere way something like, I appreciate that this man brings this tremendous dignity to the work that he's doing, even when he's constantly barraged with a sense of indignity. I then catch myself and think, even though I don't mean it at all, Josh, how is that not inherently not patronizing? To acknowledge if I'm acknowledging that someone is doing work that seems less than I'm someone you and I consider and talk about how great it is that he brings that diligence to his work and that dignity to his work, but neither of us would ever do that work. And so does that not, does that not make it on some level feel like we're actually, even though we mean it in a, in a nice way or a genuine way, does it actually not make it feel like we're, we're patronizing him. That's what I'm struggling with. I mean, isn't that kind of addressed in the Vendor's scene with the sister? Too. 
with the sister who's, you know, exactly estranged mm-hmm. from him. You get a sense because he holds this job. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I, I don't, don't, I think they're, I think they're estranged for, I think they're estranged for other reasons, but then she, she is heard. You're right. That's a really, I mean, that's a really big moment in the film when she, she says like, are you really doing this? Yeah. And he pretty simply just says yes. And you can see that she's horrified. Right. And, and again, the movie I think is taking a very clear position on the side of him and sure. not on the side of her. Sure. And I'm on the side of him and not the snob. But what Brody, I think is ultimately getting at there with that point is that by depicting him, the way vendors depicts him, even if you give him all that quote unquote dignity, the fact is you're giving him, it feels artificial and it's actually reflecting um, a sense of looking down on him, potentially yourself, even as the person making the film. I, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I mean, I think that's, I think that's a lot of getting in the headspace of the director and not allowing the character in the story to speak for itself. Honestly, I, I think it's getting a little too preoccupied with which are factors you should consider, but preoccupied with who the director is, where they're from, the fact that they're non-Japanese, all let's say not red flags, but yellow flags, like cautionary flags, like something I absolutely took into consideration. But then when you look at what's on screen and the collaborators vendors has brought around him, I, I just don't think it bears out that I could call this a patronizing film. Yeah, I I get that. And, and that's what I want to believe, but I, I will just say it, it for me started with me finding it in myself and thinking about it, judging myself for that before I looked at at vendors or or really anything else. But I I do just want to close and say I, I thought it was worth bringing up, and I I like bringing it up in the sense that I do think if you I encourage everyone to read the entire review, get the full sense of Brody's argument. And what I do really like about it goes back to that that headline actually, where it's really smart criticism in that he doesn't just say I think Perfect Days is a bad movie and here's why. He uses perfect days to articulate something about the perils of minimalism. And I watched this film thinking this is a very minimalist film, minimalist in terms of the details it gives us, the emotions it gives us, the fact that it follows a certain routine. And I was viewing that my experience with it, Josh, was purely positive. I was responding as someone who embraced the minimalism and actually found myself thinking of the minimalism as a very profound sort of art house filmmaker thing. And I like films that have this approach. And so it was interesting then to read Brody and have him say, actually the minimalistic approach, here's the pitfalls of that approach or what can be a pitfall. If a filmmaker doesn't, you know, show enough curiosity, for example, in those characters, is it, is the minimalism actually a reflection of a deficiency when I was purely viewing it as, oh, this is a great technique vendors is using to be minimal. It just, it, it challenged me. It made sure. me think about oh, it, yeah. but it made me think about minimalism as a, as a, as a type of film and as a filmmaking approach and when it works and when it doesn't work. Yeah, no, of course. I mean, I, I, I'm this, I'm similar to you. I no longer, I don't have the time to read as much criticism as I'd like. And as a matter of process, I don't before I've, done my own work 
And, but I will say the stuff that I do read is always going to be the stuff where it's someone who takes the opposite approach that I did (laughs) the opposite response to a film. Like I'm going to read that immediately before I read 10 people who agreed with me. So I'm with you there. Film spotting is listener supported. Join the film spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter. And for the first time, all in one place, the entire film spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.